0: How many of you heard Charles Sarr do the um, the history of self-supporting work? Okay, so I I just wanna make a reference to this, um, these pictures from Madison College. Um, Ellen White in the middle and then EA Sutherland and Percy McGann. And I think Charles probably told you that she called them the boys. And that they had this unique experience that, as they were at Battle Creek College, they boarded in her home, and so they often had meals together with her, and she shared with them really the vision of education that you know um, started as uh, moving um, Battle Creek to Andrews and then stepping out further and and establishing Madison College. But the idea was that she had this body of knowledge that was given to her as the vision for us establishing schools that finished the work. And then they kind of hammered out in a practical experience that, that kind of education at Madison. And she was a partner with them, she was on their board. Um, but then a number of us can, can connect the dots a little further. For example, Steve Dickman, his, his father went to school at Madison College and then went from Madison College to where they are now at Harbert Hills to establish that school. And so there's a connection from Steve to his father to E.A. Sutherland and Percy McGann, then to Ellen White. And for me, it's it's a different kind of connection. My connection comes through Little Creek. Little Creek Academy Came from Professor Straw, who taught at Madison College. Then he went over to Knoxville with Roger Googe, and they established Little Creek Academy. And then Bob Zollinger, they pretty much raised Bob Zollinger there. And so um, Professor Straw took an earnest interest in Bob and taught him these things and then Bob went from there and you know was at Laurelbrook and he still is there and then I came to Laurelbrook in 1992 and Mr. Bob began taking this earnest interest in me I worked with him almost every day and when he worked with me He would find times to share with me some wisdom or something about, you know, the vision of how education should go. And from time to time, he would speak to me and he he would say, you know, when you go off and you start a school, you'll need to know this. And, you know, he's saying these things to me and I'm thinking, what have I done? (laughs) Does he not want me here? (laughs) You know, you don't understand, Mr. Bob. I was called to be here. And, you know, at the resurrection, the second coming, I'm going to be here, you know. Um, but he didn't understand that. And apparently, neither did the Lord, because the Lord moved in my life and then brought me to Heritage, where I've been for the last 20 years. And over the course of those 20 years, um, there's there's been things that the Lord taught me in addition to the body of knowledge that came from them. And so I put together a book that's in the hall, and you have it on your thumb drive. Um, It's called Education and the Loud Cry. And the two parts of that book are this body of knowledge of how to run the school that develops the character of Christ in students. And then the second part about how we get from where we are into eternity now, the other aspect of that that I want to share with you is this idea of mustard seed. It's already been brought up that Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, is he going to find any faith? And, you know, faith is its the key issue for us at the end of time. That righteousness, the righteousness of Christ comes to us by faith. There is a great deal of work to be accomplished, but all that is not done of faith is sin. So, here's a quote that Jesus Jesus said. It seems ridiculous. Uh, Why would he say this? It's um, the apostles said unto the Lord, "Increase our faith." Now that seems very legitimate. But not his response. He says, If you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say to this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Who in their right mind is going to say to a sycamine tree, I'm done with you? <laughs> Off to the sea. Right? Why would you say that? I think the reason Jesus chose such a a really ridiculous sounding example. Yeah, okay, but when we pray, we, at least me, I'm imagining you too, have this idea that, you know, I I really need to make the case to the Lord why he needs to do this. (laughs) You know, i I got to justify myself here. I, l- Lord, I need this because of this and, this and this and this and this. And that's why you should listen to me and answer my prayer. And you can't justify that case. You know, you cannot say, Oh, it's an evil sycamine tree. We've got to get rid of it. You know, there's no way that you could say to the Lord, i, I got to get rid of this tree. You know? And his point is, You don't have to justify your case. It's like that woman who took healing from Jesus. Jesus didn't think about it. It was his knee-jerk reaction for virtue to go out from him and heal her. And and that's the point of the mustard seed and the dimensions of that is that very little faith on our part Moves mountains. Spiritually. And that's whether it's issues with us personally. With our heart. Whether we're trying to overcome sin. Or it's the literal challenges that we have. In our institutions where we work. You know. I need to raise a million dollars. Now that's a mountain right there. Right? How do you do that? Um, We did it in $20 increments. Um. Which, that's a lot of $20, right? Um, But my point is that the Lord is ready to move in ways that you don't anticipate and you don't understand. All you need to do is have that faith. You know, if you can just express to him that you've got this utmost confidence in him. You know, his natural reaction to that is, all right, well, you know, be it according to your faith. So, um, I want to share with you some stories because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. In other words, when I share with you things that God has done for me or done for my students, um, it inspires, it inspires Confidence in God by hearing it, um, and I want to illustrate that too. Um, this little passage in Ephesians two eight through ten it, it needs it needs a little thought. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, and and that um, is the grace. Even faith itself is a gift to us, right? That's not of yourselves. Where do you get faith? Well, faith comes by hearing. You don't, you don't just concentrate real hard and bear down and muster it up. It's a gift from God. So faith, grace, by, sa- by grace you're saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. But there's another gift, too. He goes on to say, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, when we have these enormous accomplishments, there is, no, there is no way that we can boast and say, look what I have done. You know, I've built this grand building. You know, or I've graduated all these students. Right? There's no way that we are to say, yeah, I did this. Right? Nebuchadnezzar had an issue with that. Right? Um, same thing with us. We're, we, don't, we have to give credit to the Lord because it is all him. Everything is a gift from him. Every aspect of salvation and every aspect of his life. And this next, this next verse here, because we're his workmanship and we're created in Jesus Christ unto good works. So he creates us to put these good works in our life, right? Right? And notice the next thing it says about the good works. God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, God thought the whole thing through, and you just, like, walk into the situation. And then you connect to him with faith. Something wonderful happens, right? And he ordained that that should should be just, like, you know, like clothing that we wear. You know, it's like, wow, what a great experience. We get to know Jesus personally and deeply when we have these wonderful kind of experiences. And I want to bring out another aspect of it. I don't like the experiences. Like, when God wants to do something wonderful for me, he puts me in a situation that I do not like. Um, briefly, when I came to Heritage, God was clever. I was full of zeal and enthusiasm and I knew that the Lord was leading me. What I did not know was that there was a checking account for the school and there was some money in it. Sixty dollars second thing I did not know was that all the staff were quitting. And the third thing I didn't know was that there were only two students. You know, I I got there with my truck, you know, and I I said to Lee Demick, um, hey, I'm here. And he said, good, I'll send the students over to unload your truck. He sent all both of them, (laughs) you know. (laughs) The Lord put me in a very challenging situation. Now, if I had known... Any one of those three things, it would have been clear to me, no, this is not where the Lord is leading me, right? So he hid all of that from me and then put me in a situation where I had to do some praying, right? And, and so it, it put me in a situation where I could see his greatness activated through faith. Um, same, same thing with Lazarus and his two sisters You know, I mean, there was nothing ambiguous about that. You know, Lord, the one who you love, really sick. And, you know, they expected that when he heard that, you know, this is his best friend, he would come. You know, and so when he does come, finally, he's like, Lord, if you had come, he would never have died. In fact, even before he went, Jesus said to his disciples... You know, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for it, because if I was there, he wouldn't have never died. But I'm going so that God can be glorified. Right now, those awful, austere, difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in have a higher purpose. And Jesus, frankly, presumes on our friendship from time to time, right? Because John chapter 12, you know, right after this whole thing, there's a party, right? And Lazarus is sitting right next to Jesus and Lazarus doesn't say anything like, I died. Do you realize I died? Do you know what that was like? Right now, he could have said that, right? But there was joy and happiness because the friendship between them was robust enough that Lazarus doesn't hold that against Jesus. That Lazarus has grace for Jesus. Is anything that I'm saying here making sense? That we allow God the latitude to do things, because sometimes when our lives are not going well, you know, we're like, that's it, Lord. I'm done. I expected better from you. Right? I you were supposed to be this really great, wonderful Savior, but I'm enduring all this, and I'm struggling here, and it's like you don't even care. That's, that's the kind of language, you know, that we generate when we're in difficult circumstances. But what I'm saying is to see the glory of the Lord, we have to have grace for him and not be so demanding and be willing to endure a little hardship They endured hardship, and everybody. this happened two miles from Jerusalem. All those people in Jerusalem who didn't believe, who personally were acquainted with Lazarus, all those leaders of Israel knew him personally. There was no way they could gain saying this. He was dead for three days, and when they rolled back that stone, it stank, right? There was no doubt. You know, they couldn't say, well, he was just mostly dead, you know? They might have said that with a little girl, you know, Jairus' daughter. There's no way they could say that to this. This glorified Jesus. So sometimes our hard circumstances are for his glory. So there's Heritage Academy, and that's I already told you about, the 60 and 2. $60, two students. Um, there it is, $60. $60. Um, now the th- the thing about that experience is that that drove us as a staff to the spirit of prophecy because very clear this school is going to close unless we figure out what it is that the Lord is expecting from us and so we hit the books and year after year after year we hit the books and you know it wasn't suddenly wonderful It was a lot of years that were difficult and trying. But those books brought us to the point where we collected the spirit of prophecy and we organized it and we put it together, you know, chapter by chapter. These are the elements of what it takes to make your school effective so that you don't have 50% of your students, you know, who don't even believe and leave the church but that they have a genuine experience with Christ, with you in the school. I'll <clears throat> tell you about this really quick. Um, this is another experience. The Lord was um, maybe done with subtlety with me. Um, over, over the course of time that I've been teaching there have been things that I've written for my students for my for my Bible class. And I was under a certain level of conviction that I need to get these books together and I need to publish them and share them with other people. Um, anyhow, you know, Thanksgiving, you have your family over and it's, it's fun and everything. Except for me, on Sunday, things were not going well. I spent... A lot of time in the bathroom um, just throwing up and I'm not a person who normally throws up. Uh, um, I mean normally my stomach is pretty strong so my wife began to notice that I'm not around a lot and so later in the day she comes into the bathroom and I'm there and I have this indigestion and I've gone all through the medicine cabinet and looked for everything and you know the bottle of pepto bismol is all dried up and there's there's nothing and i i know that if i can just get her to go to one of our neighbors and borrow a bottle of pepto bismol i will be fine you know i just i just have this gas you know a lot of gas pressure you know but when i burp it relieves the pressure i feel better right and so she asked me to describe my symptoms and I'm, oh i'm just so you know, it hurts in my back, you know, and, and she said to me, um, all right, get in the car. And I'm like, why? I just need you to go and get, pe- get in the car. We're going to go to the hospital. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's not that bad. It's just my stomach. Just get in the car. So I get in the car, you know, and on the way there, she says, you know what I think? I think you're having a heart attack. And I'm like, no, no, no. You'll see when we get there, I'm just fine. All I need is Pepto-Bismol. So we get to the hospital. And you know how it is when you go to the emergency room. It doesn't seem like it's an emergency, right? You sit down and then you pick out a magazine. And, you know, you know you've got plenty of time so you're going to read a lot. So I, I pick up, you know, a magazine and I'm, I'm just about to start reading. And somebody comes out and they're like, I need you to come with me. So I go with them. Was a surprise, you know. They they put me in a room, you know. And they start hooking me up to stuff, and then a guy says to me, "You're having a heart attack." I'm like, "No, you, no, that can't be right," you know. Anyhow, this hospital wasn't didn't have a cardiac unit, so they had to put me in an ambulance and send me to another hospital, and there was this awkwardness because they, before you get sent off in the ambulance, you know, they they put me together with my wife in a room. You know, I'm on this gurney, you know, they're to ship me off. And, and then she, um, before they put me in there, they kind of expressed that, you know, well, they didn't say it exactly this way, but if you have any last words, now's the time to say them, right? And so... It's still a shock, you know, and I'm I'm thinking, what am I going to say? You know, and she's there, and the only thing I can think of is, I love you. And then there's this awful, awful, overwhelming conviction because I'm thinking, and if I die, the next thing I'll do is see Jesus. And I'm picturing Jesus asking me a question. And the question was, how come you never finished those books I gave you to do? And I'm just like overwhelmed, (laughs) I'm like, oh no, what am I gonna do? So I'm thinking, okay, I gotta give my wife my password to the computer and tell her where all these different things are stored on my computer and tell her what needs to be done in each one. And I'm trying to communicate all that to her and I'm kind of panicked as I'm saying this stuff. And then she takes out her finger. You ever have somebody take out their finger for you? (laughs) She takes out her finger and she sticks it right in my face. And she says, oh no, there's only one way these books are going to be published. And that's by you doing it. And that seemed like, seemed rather stern, you know. But her point was, if, if you want to get this done, you're going to live. Um, and so I was completely overwhelmed with conviction. And so from that time... Um, These two are published, Shimon. Um, The one, a short time, is a daily devotion about end time events through the second coming, the third coming, and then into eternity. The other one, the hope of glory, is about um, establishing a devotional life um, to develop the character of Christ. This one's unpublished, uh, Mustard Seeds, which we're talking about now the one on the left is in the hall revelation and the remnant is a bible study on revelation and basically i don't give the answers i just ask the questions and i say compare this with this it's lots of charts um, so that you can see how all the books of the bible come together in revelation and you know things that it's quoting i put what it's quoting there Revelation study guide is, is, is much longer and it's kind of exhaustive. Um, abomination and desolation. Jesus said, Jesus said, that's the one thing that we need to know. Not just study Daniel, but you need to know about the abomination of desolation. And so that's a study of the abomination of desolation as it appears through the history of Israel, through the dark ages, and then its final manifestation. Uh, in the end time events. By Gold is the message to the Laodiceans. Um, Grace and Glory is the 1888 message um, in 11 studies. Close to Jesus is is a book that I wrote because um, my kids, it was clear that they didn't have a personal experience with Jesus. And so this is the personal experience of people who were close to Jesus through the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And what I do in my class is that they have to write a personal testimony for one of those people to prepare them to think about the aspects of having a personal testimony themselves. And it's it's really effective. The lamp and the lampstand is what I referred to earlier, um, which is a literary study of the Gospel of Mark to show how peace relates with peace and how there's much greater depth there than than we really imagine the rest came up in my bible class because i was being clever i divided it into two groups i gave one group text about why we should worship on sunday the argument of sunday keepers and i gave the other group texts on sabbath and then you know kind of like court right All right, you guys just fight it out, you know, and different people speak, and the Sunday keepers won. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. (laughs) So that made it real clear to me, you know what, we need to go a little more into depth into the meaning of the Sabbath. Revelation 13.8 makes the point that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so that's, that's one of the keys to understanding the, the meaning of the Sabbath, is seeing it in the relationship to the cross. The great work is, um, is what we have to do between now and the second coming to bring all that about. And that brings us to the killer dog. Now, I want to talk to you about the killer dog, because the killer dog illustrates how faith in God is infectious that it goes from person to person to person. Now, it also illustrates the, the mustard seed con- concept because God took very little faith for me and you know, found himself able to work with it. Um, we do cull portering. And so I was taking students out in, uh, in a place called Grimsley, which is near where we live. And this road is about a mile long and so I'm driving them in the van. And I've dropped off different kids at different places. So I have the last two in the van. And as I'm driving down the road, I notice that this road is different than other roads. There's houses evenly spaced along the side. It's country, so they have big yards. But every, every house has a dog. And every dog pretty much understands dog law. Dog law is that your job is to defend your property. So when somebody comes by in a car, you bark and run from one end of your property to the other, and then, you know, maybe a few feet beyond, and then you stop. And so as I'm passing house after house, dog after dog is running, you know. So, you know, it's like a relay race. The next dog takes over, and then the next dog, and the next dog, and all the way down the street, dog after dog after dog. And I have with me Justin and Amy. Justin is robust. Not only is he robust, he's um, he knows martial arts. So I'm thinking, Justin's great, you know? He'll be able to handle himself. But Amy is tiny. She's short, she's petite, you know, like a princess, you know? And... Um, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't want them to work opposite sides of the street because I don't want Amy on her own. So I say, Justin, go with Amy, door to door, you know, in pairs. And, um, you know, you watch over her. And I kind of felt like what I said, you know, implied, you know, if there's a dog that comes, you'll do the right thing. You'll sacrifice your body and you'll save her. You know, I had all that going on in my mind. Um, so... I meet Killer Dog on my way back. I drive him all the way down to the end of the street. You know, there's kind of a dead end. And there's a house that's down a long driveway that's through a woods. You can't see the house from the end of the driveway. So I turn around and I'm driving back. And as I'm driving back, it's the same routine. You know, the dogs are bark, 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 bark. And then the next one takes over. Until I get about halfway down the street, which is about a mile long. And... There he is, killer dog. And he's not like the other dogs. He is not obeying dog law. He is in the middle of the street and he is lined up like he's some sort of a football player, you know, this, just ready for the snap of the ball. He's gonna come and tackle me. And, you know, I'm heading down and he, he's, you know, staring me down. Suddenly, he begins to run toward the van. And, you know, I'm just incredulous. What is this dog thinking? The next thing I know, he's airborne. And he hits the van. And the slobber from his mouth splashes on the windshield. And I'm thinking, this dog is crazy. <laughs> and, and so, you know, he bounces off and he continues. And as I'm driving, it's just thud, thud, thud. He's running along and smacking into the driver's door, trying to get through that door to get me. And then, you know, eventually the thought occurs to me, Justin and Amy are going to have to confront this dog. This will never work. So I, I realized the right thing to do is to go back and gather them and take them door to door so that they can be kept safe by me and the van. It's a bad idea. <clears throat> because when I turn around and I go back, killer dog follows me. All the way down the street. He's not obeying dog law at all. He should have stayed at his house. He goes all the way down the street. And as I'm getting near the end of the street, I'm beginning to realize, oh no, I'm delivering Killer Dog to Justin and Amy. What am I going to do? You know, and I'm starting to slow down trying to rethink my plan. And Killer Dog runs past the van down the driveway where they are. And then I pray this prayer. Help, Lord. I can't save them now. You have to. That's a faithless prayer. You know? I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost nothing. It is like a mustard seed in terms of its level of faith. So I follow down that driveway. And when I, you know, there's a little parking lot that they have. And when I get to the little parking lot, Killer Dog is just ahead of me. And Killer Dog does the same thing to Amy. Amy sees him and he comes running towards him, just the same football player kind of thing. He leaps into the air, and I'm like, "Oh no, he's going to kill Amy, right? Going right through the throat." Then he does a weird thing. He's up in the air, and then he rolls over on, on his you know with his belly up, and he lands on his back. And then Amy bends over. And I 'm like, "No I Amy, mean, no, he 's a killer, and she starts scratching his belly, you know, and he 's just you know like a little puppy, you know, and i 'm thinking, "What in the world and I 'm still just kind of pulling in, and then all of a sudden it's like the demon seizes killer dog again, and he springs to life, and Justin 's over at the door, and he runs to that that door, you know where Justin is. Does the same thing up in the air and like, oh no, he's gonna kill Justin now, right? Then does the same thing, this you know, rolling over, landing on his back, you know, Justin's, you know, petting the little doggy, and and I'm incredulous. And so they see me in the van, and they're like, Mr. Baker, is there something wrong? <laughs> and I'm, I, I, have, I have nothing to say. I'm like, no, I just wanted to make sure you're okay. <laughs> That was it. I got myself out of there. Uh, So, you know, it seemed like the Lord answered my prayer. So, (laughs) away I go. So, I'm doing my thing with the other kids, you know, picking them up, dropping them off. And I gave them instructions, you know, to meet me at the road. And I would pick them up. And so, you know, about the time I expected them there, they were there, Justin and Amy. They're standing at the main road. And Killer Dog is with them. And I'm like... You know, you guys don't know what you're doing. That's a killer dog, you know. And so, you know, as they're getting in the van, Amy, you know, kneels down. And um, these are not actual pictures, you know. They didn't take pictures at the time. But uh, where is it? Amy hugs killer dog. And then she gets in the van. and And I'm like, you guys would not believe this. And I told them my whole story. And they said, well, you would not believe this because as we worked the street, this dog stayed with us everywhere and he stayed right by Amy's side. And every time we came to a house, he drove the dogs away from the door. So everywhere we went, he was like our security dog. That's an amazing story. That, And, you know, we shared that story um, on Friday night. We did this on Friday. Then the Friday night, we shared the story um, with the students. And there were many dog stories as a result. It inspired faith in the students. Uh, I just want to share this one briefly. It's a similar kind of story. That um, same area. Grimsley, There was construction going on. There was a guy who was a construction worker. And so we went to where they're building these houses. And we talked to the construction worker. And he said, hey, look, I'm working right now. I don't have time for this. Come by at lunchtime. So we continue to work in the area. And then um, Wendy and Aaron, I'm dropping them off in the driveway of the house. And as I drop them off, I notice... There's a Rottweiler with a very heavy chain, you know, that's, that's over near the front door. And I prayed a, a weird prayer. I said, Lord, make the, the dog afraid of them and not them afraid of the dog. And then I just got myself out of there. And so the story they told me later when I picked them up was at that, that house... Um, you know, Wendy, Wendy sees the dog, and so she's like, you know, reaching her hand out, nice and the dog is barking, but the dog backs up and keeps backing up. And, you know, as they get onto the front porch, the dog is backing up. He, he cowers in the corner like he's terrified. And the guy answers the door. The guy who answers the door is the construction worker from earlier that day. He's never seen his dog do that before. And uh, anyhow, you know, tremendous conviction, and the Lord answered that prayer in a real glorious way. So we have a lot of dog stories from the first dog story because that story inspired faith that God's really willing to take, you know, almost nothing that we have and work with us. One more story that involves a dog is the dark house. Um, And and this quote, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, the reason that I'm saying that is because the the prayer that I offered here was beyond ineloquent. It was, it was, I don't know, stupid. Um, I'm, this is in Crossville. I'm dropping students off. And this is at night. We're culporting to raise money for a mission trip. And I drop these two girls off on this street. And I expect them to meet me at the other end of the street. And as I'm driving down the street, I see this house that is so dark, it's remarkable to me. I mean, it isn't just the darkness of night, but the house itself was incredibly dark, and it had a chain-link fence all the way up at the street, and then a dog. And as I drive by, this dog is attacking the fence, biting the fence, trying to tear through the fence so he can get to me. And my prayer, I, I am... You've heard of prayer walking. I do prayer driving when I call Porter. So I, I continuously am in prayer, talking to the Lord about things, and I Just said, wow, Lord, I wonder what's going to happen when the girls get here. That was my prayer. It's not really asserting anything or asking anything. It's just, well, I wonder what's going to happen. And and so, you know, Romans 8.26, the Lord takes these awkward, stupid prayers and he makes something out of them. You know, and so he took that prayer and the girls told me when they got there, they saw that vicious dog and they thought it best to just walk on by especially the fact that the house is completely dark there's not a light on there's probably nobody home and as they walked with each step as they passed that house a heavy sense of conviction weighed upon them and by the time they got to the sidewalk for the next house they were just overcome and they're like we can't do this we have to go back to that house so they go back to that house and they stand at that gate with that dog And they just pray a simple prayer. You know, Lord, if there's somebody here, please make it possible so that, you know, we can see them. And, you know, when they get done praying, there's no dog. So they open the gate. And they walk up to the house. They knock on the door. They knock on the door and the light comes on. A little old man comes out. And they sold him like three or four books, you know, and he was really grateful. Then when they're done with him... They walk back to the gate. They shut that gate. Suddenly, this dog comes from the backyard and starts attacking the fence again. Um, So my my point here is that God is so eager to work with us. He's willing to deal with just about any kind of prayer at all. You know? And um, the holy sky. The holy sky happened when we were in Mexico. We were holding a series of evangelistic meetings, um, and we were doing literature evangelism. So I had a group of students there, and, um, you know, we break for lunch. The weather's beautiful. Um, But between 12 and 1245, the sky started gathering blackness, and so it darkened... And it darkened further. Uh, And then, you know, I have this organizational meeting to assign people where they're going to go. And, you know, um, my plan is to send them to these two towns to distribute literature to promote our meetings. And people are saying to me, you can't send kids out in this kind of weather. And I... I said, "Look, they're not made out of sugar. They're not going to melt." Well, it was as if I spoke to the weather and the weather responded to my words. Um we're in a we're in a in a building that has a tin roof and it's really hard rain, so it's very loud, right? You can barely hear when you're talking. It goes dead quiet. And I'm like, There, you see. Three seconds of that dead quiet. Suddenly we had golf ball size hail. And then I'm starting to rethink things. You know, and I'm like, yeah, maybe I should be figuring out something. And, you know, our our chaplain, who speaks Spanish, said, I perceive that this is a spirit, he's saying this in Spanish, I perceive that this is a spiritual issue. And we need to resolve in our hearts that we're going to go out even if the hail gets bigger. And as soon as he's done speaking, it's quiet again. And I'm like, okay, so there. And then we go to a much larger size hail. And he just grabs the kids and brushes them out into the van. And so they head off into this blackness. And they drive to town and... Um, and when they, so, you know, they're driving in the dark at noonday, right? And, and they get to town, and um, when they get there, the um, students say, well, what are we going to do? Because it's still raining. And one of the students says, I know, we'll just pray that the Lord will stop the rain. Now, those of us who have no, you know, more sense would say, you can't ask the Lord that kind of a prayer. But remember the sycamine tree, right? This seems ridiculous, you know. What kind of a case can I make for this, you know, that Lord, you know, we're trying to pass this stuff out, right? Maybe that would work. Another kid takes the handle of the door and slides it open. As they slide that door open, the rain stops. And they all step out of the van. And this, the picture, oops, the picture um, doesn't really do it justice because this is not a picture from them, but it kind of looks like what happened. A hole opened in the clouds, circular. And everybody looked up and they could see the sun shining through the hole. And they took their literature door to door throughout that town. And when they were done, they got back in the van And they closed the door and immediately it started raining again. They drove from there to the second town. When they got to that town, they prayed the same prayer. They opened the door the same way. The rain stopped again. They looked up and again, there's a circular hole in the sky above them. I mean, it's incredible. Um, Miriam Bailey is here. She was in the van. She can... She can give you her personal perspective on this. Anyhow, my point is, it's a mountain answer to a mustard seed level of prayer, of faith. I talked about raising a million dollars. That's a picture of our girls' dorm and... The uh, engineers said it would cost 1.2 million dollars to build it. Um, we we raised money bit by bit, but we got you know about 200, 300 thousand dollars, and you know we're in the pro- process of building it. And and our money just dries up, and things seem hopeless. And for a morning devotion. I'm reading the text, thou shalt not, you know, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and mammon. I'm like, well, I have nothing to worry about with this text, right? Because, you know, I work at a self-supporting school. You know, I don't have problems with mammon. And then conviction came over me and said, no. How do you make your decisions? Do you make your decisions based on what I want you to do? Or do you make them based on money? And then it came clear to me, we're serving mammon in this building because we're not working on it because we don't have money. So we we, um, we talked about that. Well, the same day the fire marshal shows up. Now we have like we've scaled everything back and we figured out how we can build this building. We just wouldn't finish the portion where the assistant girls' dean would live, right? And we said that to our um, we said that to our fire marshal and. He also had a finger (laughs) and shook it in our face. And he said, oh, no, you will finish this building by January. And if it's not done, there is a new fire code and you will have to remove every piece of electrical work that you've done and redo the entire building to comply with the new code. And we were just shocked. From that day, our experience was like the experience of Elijah and the widow. We just said, we're going to build with what we have. We have materials, we'll start building. And from there on, we're talking about a dorm that cost um, just over $500,000. That's what we actually spent on our $1.2 million dorm, which came in little $20 donations. Not... Not many major donations. And I don't know who was given the money, you know, because I didn't think we knew that many people. Um, We finished that building. We finished it by January and satisfied that building inspector. That's faith and works. Remember the first thing we were looking at in in Ephesians? That faith goes together with works and God has works planned for you. And that was hard work. But that's what it takes. And I'm sharing that with you because in, in this kind of work, we are challenged with big things like that. And we're like, you know, where's a little guy like me going to get all that money? Right? And the Lord answers marvelously. This is, um, this is an answer to prayer. Um, there's a few people that we know in um, media ministry. And we were hearing from all of them the same thing it's like all the students who are trained you know in our universities get jobs at abc cbs you know these big these big operations and we can't get anybody who's going to work on a missionary stipend and so we talked about it and we prayed about it and we said you know if we started video production in our school we could get them a set of skills that could make them useful in ministries. And so we um, we got these grants, and, and they just came. We got a grant from OCI, we got a grant from ASI, and we had a major donor give $10,000. So we had $60,000. Now, I, I liken this to Joshua going through Jordan, because... The Lord didn't dry up the Jordan. He said, just, you send those guys in there. After they're in there, I'll dry it up. And I had everything that we needed to do video production except somebody who could produce video. So um, I got a book. (laughs) And I read, and I started teaching, and we started video production. Um, And then... You know, we went through a couple people. Then one of our parents sent us a resume. And when, when we read his resume, there was nothing in that resume that jumped out to us. You know, like, how are we going to use somebody like this? And so it went in a drawer. And then the girl who was doing video production for us told me that she's going to go to Korea next year and teach there. Then, you know, my wife and I are talking about it, and she says, Hey, wait a minute. I have a resume in a drawer. And we pulled it out, and it was like, you know, there's a halo of light or something. You know, it's like, it's so clear. This is the guy. So we called him. This is a parent of one of our students. And we said, um, hey, we've been going over your resume. How do you like to work at Heritage Academy? Well, the same day he had already gotten an offer to be the CEO of the company where he worked. And, um, man, what an amazing decision to have to make. You know, live, you know, as a self-supporting worker or make real money doing big things, right? And the Lord convicted him and sent him to Heritage. And above there is one of the videos that... uh, That we've done. We do a series of videos. um, For for teenagers. Which address teenage issues. And this one's called. Am I really worth something? We got a bus. We've been through a series of buses. When I first went there. We had a bus from 1963. It was great. Had a lot of answered prayers. Because you know. Broke down all the time. Really learned how to pray with that bus. Um, but then we got another bus, but that bus uh, had a problem with the engine and it kind of burned up. So then we got another bus, which we have now, and that's a 1985 Privo. And it's been a pretty good bus, but our mechanic started saying to us last year, you know, this bus is getting to the point where it's just costing us all kinds of money to do repair We should be thinking about a new bus. Well, to get that bus, excuse me, we had to raise $26,000, which, you know, that's that's a lot of money to me. Um, And so I'm thinking, okay. So then they started doing a little fundraiser, and they raised about $7,000. So I'm thinking, well, we're nowhere near a bus. And then we got this call from our mechanic, both of our mechanics, each one of them called us separately, and they said, hey, I'm looking at this bus that's going up for auction in Knoxville, and I think we can get it. And they're thinking in terms like, maybe we can get it for $7,000. And um, so, you know, my wife says, well, okay, go ahead and try. They bid, and we we got this bus, for $7,000, then all the fees and everything, I think, came to like 7800 You know, it was in an accident. And um, one of the things that we do is we rebuild vehicles. We'll buy vehicles that are totaled. And, you know, we'll, we'll do the work on them. And, you know, we can sell them for um, way more than what we spent on them. And that's one of the things we teach our students. So, you know, we got this bus. And, you know, all we had to do was replace a windshield and part of the door and, and then, you know, put some nice artwork on the side, and we had a bus. And that's, that's an illustration of faith and works again, right? Because we can't say, you know, that we can boast and say, you know, all the glory goes to us, look at how skilled we are. No, the Lord brought us to the position where we could get that bus for $7,000, because you wouldn't normally get a bus like that for $7,000. Again, I'm trying to share with you practical answers to prayer that you find that you need in your institution. Aviation. We have an aviation program. And some of you know David Gates, who has an aviation program. And he spoke to me one time and said... Have you ever thought of doing an aviation school? And I said, No, but, you know, if you feel like the Lord needs one, you know, we could do that. So he and I got together. We had prayer. Maybe we spent five minutes together. And I walked away from that prayer with conviction that we're going to have an aviation program now. There was um, a parent who visited the school, and, you know, we showed her and her boys around. They ended up not coming, but she called her sister and told her sister all about the school. And that year our history teacher passed away. And so we had Debbie had mentioned in her prayer, you know, she has prayer with the people before they leave, and so the last thing she mentions in her prayer is, And Lord, give us a history teacher. And who knows why she said that. But the lady called her sister and told her all about the school and said oh and they need a history teacher and her sister says what they need a history teacher i gotta go hangs up the phone she calls her husband her husband is a pilot and he's been having these conversations with his wife and saying you know i don't see any meaning in my life i want to do something that really you know has meaning well what would you like to do I think I would like to teach history. So they've been talking about this, right? And so anyhow, they end up, you know, touring the campus. And he has no, no idea what's going on, you know. But they end up being hired. And, you know, he, he in his mind is done with aviation. And now he's a history teacher. So when I tell him about my prayer with David Gates and how the Lord wants us to have a he's like, no, you don't understand how difficult this stuff is, right? You just don't know. And, you know, my wife had the same kind of response. No, there's just so much liability. There's so much risk. There's no way we can do it. And I'm like, okay, but, you know, I had prayer. They're <laughs> Like, hogwash, you know? Um, and so we go to an ASI meeting. And our history teacher, who is the pilot, goes with us to promote our granola. And while he's there, he runs into people from AWA, Adventist World Aviation. And they're just talking, and then one thing leads to another, and they find out that he's a pilot. And they're like, you're a pilot? And you're at Heritage Academy? So they started praying from that day that the Lord would establish an aviation program on our campus. And so they're calling him month by month. Hey, you working on the aviation program? He has no interest in it. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I've been really busy, right? Month after month. Comes to December, and they call him up and they say, Hey, great news. Somebody donated a plane to your school. (laughs) And he's like, What? So now the Lord is really forcing his and my wife's hands. And so we come to a board meeting. And they're, they're just sweating bullets. And they're like, what are we going to say to our board members? You know, they're going to think we're so irresponsible. They're going to think we're just crazy. And so he has a PowerPoint presentation all put together. And he does his presentation. And when he gets done with his presentation, you know, we're just fearing the worst, you know. And one of the board members was um, one of the founding members of AWA. We didn't know that. So he begins stuff. To- Talking about, you know, how great an idea this is and how excited he is. And when he gets done talking, another board member is also associated with AWA. And he talks about it. And then a third one. And we're just watching this stuff happen like, wow. Again, what did I do to make all this happen? Maybe five minutes of prayer. And then just a conviction that the Lord is going to make this happen. The Lord is so capable if we just bring to him the smallest level of faith. And I just want to encourage you so that in your own life, you can have a lot of dog stories. You know, so that things that you've heard will inspire you to dare. You know, to, to be willing to, to trust God and say, okay... Let's see what you can do. Because that's what it takes. That's what it takes to get us from where we are today into the kingdom. Remember the point that I made earlier about Jairus' daughter, right? The, the statement about her death is sandwiched between statements of faith. We overcome death by faith. That's, that's the essence of Christianity. Through faith in Jesus, we have eternal life. And... It's faith that will take us from here to the kingdom. So I, I want to encourage you, just lay it out before the Lord. You know, I, I, like this disciple said, increase my faith. And, and give him a chance to lay out these works in your life, which he has prepared ahead of time, where you just show up and it happens. You know, you, I mean, you're just like the witness. That's all you do.